Hey, if you're loving Creative Mind, please check out some of our past episodes where we deep dive into topics like children's book illustration, video game design, filmmaking, and of course, the most important topic of all, how do you make a living as an artist? So please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so you never miss an episode. And also check out the show notes for links to our Instagram and YouTube pages for more great content. Imagine having Oracle Park, where the San Francisco Giants play, as your theater of dreams. On this episode of Creative Mind, we're going to talk with Angie Annette, who is a motion designer, meaning she creates all of the visual signage, all of the visual design, videos, motion graphics, 3D work that you see when you would go to a live event. Some of that is now, of course, moving over into the world of virtual events. And that's where our talk really gets extra interesting in that Angie talks to us about the future of virtual events and the future of motion design for virtual events, but also walks us through her background in live, in-person sports, working for the San Francisco Giants and, of course, esports teams like the San Francisco Shock. So grab a pen and paper, take some notes. Here's Angie Annette. I was one of the motion designers who did quite a bit of work for BlizzCon along with a small team of other designers. Basically, this year was the first year that BlizzCon was exclusively online because of COVID. We created all sorts of content from title cards to lower thirds and all sorts of variations of three boxes and two boxes and you know anything you could imagine for different video edits. And during all that, basically, you know, our goal was to bring the fun of BlizzCon online. And that, that's very difficult, but it wasn't something I was necessarily used to because, you know, going throughout my career, I've done a lot of live event stuff. So it was new territory and a lot of work just because usually those events, you're always working live. You don't have to create as much content as what we had to do for BlizzCon. Let's kind of back this up and kind of explain it a little bit better. So in traditional sports television, which is your milieu, if we're going to get fancy and you use terms like that, and BlizzCon being an eSports event, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. I would say BlizzCon, in addition to eSports, it, it was also the 30th anniversary uh, oh, wow. here of Blizzard. It spans every single game, even the ones that aren't you know necessarily considered eSports, so... So 13 months ago, this would have been fireworks and zip lines and planes flying over and video walls and people and screaming and t-shirt cannons. I, I mean, yeah, more or less. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I remember, um, you know, watching the Overwatch World Cup last year and just seeing these major arenas, the 16 foot screens and all the content that went on it. And none of that happened this year. Obviously, it's impossible to get that sort of excitement and feeling into a video that you're sitting on your couch watching pajamas. <laughs> but, you know, it, the content is what's important at the end of the day. You know, people yeah, and, and, about uh, the games. Right. And let's talk about the, the content that you're creating because, as we're joking a little bit, kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of like, I hope things change, you know, there is a new sea change in the content that we're going to be creating. I mean, you and I are talking over Zoom. We're delivering it as a podcast. I mean, normally we'd be sitting face-to-face in a studio, but now you're tasked with creating a unique event that's being streamed. What have you done differently, or what were some of the things you did differently that you can talk about in the world of creating graphics and your specific role 
in this new normal of what we're doing now with small screen streaming content? I, I think you could probably equate what happened with BlizzCon to even just like uh, Twitch live streaming. It, it's very much kind of that same mindset of you have this graphics package that basically can consist of anything an editor would need. And that varied very much between each individual piece in the BlizzCon lineup. And, you know, I think probably at the end of the day, we we made close to maybe 500 assets just for... Oh, man, that's each, insane. Yeah, each individual video. And, I mean, if I were looking at this in a context of a live event, you know, sure, you're probably making a few things, you know? But a lot of it is driven by the audience reaction. It's driven by all of the energy of the different events that happen. Making that content for something that's going to be viewed online. I well, give me, yeah, yeah, give me an example. Because normally, like in television, we would have the lower thirds, which is the bar that fits one third below the screen that's got the name, the, the team name, some, some statistics, probably some bugs, which are the little graphics that we see in the corners, probably some animation whiz-bang, wazzledy-boozes in the corners and stuff. I know it's a very technical term for people listening to <laughs> wazzledy-boo. But what else did you have to make then that you would normally not be tasked with? In my career, like I've worked both kind of like the live event side and the broadcast side, you know, being in that mindset of both. It was kind of an easy um, crossover for me personally, just because, you know, having done uh, videos with the Giants, you know, a lot, a lot of those same rules still applied. But I, I think just in terms of BlizzCon in general, it was something new just as in like, yes, there, there were lower thirds before, there were title cards before, but they were used in a much different way, if that makes sense. A lot of the title cards we did had the different animated characters from World of Warcraft or Starcraft or any of those Blizzard titles. Last year, those were mainly used on the different screens around the arena saying like, oh, you know, tickets are over here or, you know, and obviously- All that, all that digital signage and wayfinding exactly. color in an event. Exactly. You're basically taking that feeling, those animations, all of that stuff that was used previously and kind of using all of that to lead up to each individual event. We had to make all sorts of different schedules with countdown timers on it. And even back to the title cards too, it's like all of that stuff, you're trying to make your audience excited with graphics. I, I, I don't think at the end of the day that like, it makes up for, you know, not being in person, especially just because, you know, we've all been isolated for so long. Everybody wants to get back to that eventually, and I feel that. But, you know, being able to kind of take those different things and graphics that you may have seen in past BlizzCons or whatever kind of Comic-Con you went to and kind of attach that to the different videos and the different content that we produced, I think it helps people kind of connect back to those times in a way, you know? Yeah, yeah that, that makes total sense because, you know, even as we're talking and then you know, we all go through Zoom meetings or Microsoft team meetings or whatever video conferencing, you know, the joke is at any moment, my kid's going to run in behind me or, oh, look, I have a stack of toilet paper in the background. I have to remember to move that when we talk. You have to create a look and feel experience in a 16 by 9 square and, and just blast us with as much information as possible to keep us immersed in, in something that, you know, we don't want to run away from. With that big event behind you, without making massive predictions, 
do you see teleconferencing and streaming events becoming more viable or more enjoyable? I think it kind of depends on the individual. I mean, even as an introvert myself, you know, I I, I enjoy going to those kinds of things live. But I, I think the biggest thing that's going to come from all of this is just the accessibility of these events. I've been to Adobe Max a few times. And for people that don't know what that is, it's basically an Adobe conference. And they have classes for every single one of their programs, from Photoshop to Premiere and everything in between. They have a lot of vendors there and you can go try out new computer mice and drawing tablets and everything you can imagine. It was one of like the highlights of my year being able to go to that because you met people face to face, you made that connection, you know, you learned new skill sets and it was just a lot of fun. Obviously Adobe Max is online this year, but what was great about that was that it was 100% free. Now people from all over the world can enjoy that. So I, I think, yeah, it would be great to be able to go back to that live thing eventually. I'm hoping it it still can. But the accessibility is great because some of these kinds of events cost a lot of money. And if you can enjoy it, you know, halfway across the world and be able to learn something, that's so great. Yeah, that makes sense because, yeah, I mean, we, we forget that, you know, all these events that we go to are not free. And now that means the stuff that is free will be good because so much free content before was like, hey, everybody, I'm in my kitchen. Uh, how you doing? You know, without trying to, you know, look into a crystal ball and find out what we're going to do. Let's go back in reverse and kind of talk about where you started, because you, know, you keep talking motion graphics and you studied 3D modeling. So we know those are two very different things. And we'll explain that to people who don't. But what led you to the academy to study 3D Molly? What, what was that goal? When I was a kid, like, I mean, I think if you talked to me at about 12 years old, I would have told you I wanted to be a marine biologist. Like that, <laughs> that, was, that was my end all be, uh, be all, you know? But then I really got, in, I, when I got into high school, my high school was very small. I grew up in a very small town. It was very college slash technology focused. A, a lot of the classes I did in high school were computer apps courses. My teacher had us editing videos. We built websites. We used Adobe Flash and made character animations. <laughs> like, like we did everything and I just fell in love with it. I, I just enjoyed being able to tell stories I think that was kind of like that touchstone for me of everything I've done since then is I just love telling stories. And back then too, I'm a huge Disney nerd. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think I went to Disneyland for the first time before I even turned a year old and uh, just grew up in a family that was obsessed with it. We'd take trips to Disneyland every year and I was always in the movie theaters for the new Disney release, especially Pixar in general was just something that always fascinated me that th those 3D worlds. 3D modeling to me just kind of always hit me as something that was both creative in a computer way, but also in a physical way, because I, I like doing stuff with my hands as well, not a hand on a mouse, you know, and it, it kind of merged those two worlds for me. So when I was getting ready to decide where I wanted to go to college, I was really kind of torn between going the 3D route or more the editing side of things. And I eventually did pick 3D modeling just because I thought that was more my skill set with what I had learned in high school and kind of what I enjoyed doing the most. Yeah, so I went to the academy and studied 3D modeling. Got to do a lot of fun projects, uh, both with video games and kind of more the film side of things. 
when I graduated, I was just having a hard time finding a job in 3D modeling. And right before I graduated, I actually saw a internship posted on Twitter for the San Francisco Giants, and they were looking for production people. At the time, I was like, oh, I didn't really realize that baseball had those kinds of jobs. Right. And I yeah, was that, like, that... <laughs> <laughs> It is kind of fascinating when you start looking and you're hungry. You're like, wow, they need a lot of work in all sorts of industries. Exactly. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I was uh, naive to it at the time, I would say. I, I just never realized those kinds of jobs existed. I grew up as a Giants fan. I went to games when I was younger and I, I was just like, OK, you know, I, I'll, I'll apply and I'll see what happens. Honestly, I really never expected to get the job. But they took a chance on me, <laughs> which I appreciated. There really wasn't a lot of 3D modeling at the time. And I did get to bring some of that into my job a little later down the line. When I was first hired, I was basically doing a lot of basic editing, working the cameras on the fields. Um, oh, wow. Wrapping cords, uh, just yeah. kind of figuring out how the operations <clears throat> side of a game happens, which was fascinating in itself. But So uh, your, your quote-unquote office was... Giant stadium. Yeah, more or less. I mean, um, the, at the stadium, like if you're looking at home plate, there's a huge office on the club level, and that's the scoreboard room. And that's basically where everything takes place that you eventually see coming to the scoreboard. And that, that was basically where I spent most of my time. So, 80 some odd games a year, you're, you know, trekking on down to the stadium. Exactly. Uh, I got to go punch in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, that's what was great about it. And this kind of goes for live events in general. It, it's always different. You know, you're not sitting at a desk constantly and knowing exactly what you're going to do each day. And I do enjoy that kind of unpredictability in general. It just keeps things fun and interesting. Yeah, there really is something I, I spent quite a number of years doing live events and even when it's a boring thing like a fashion show where it's the same thing over and over again there's still something raw and exciting about okay ready to ready camera three ready three three go 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 okay ready four ready five go five go and you're just you're constantly on pins and needles for 90 minutes and then you get to go home and relax and it's fun 100 percent. yeah how long were you at the giants was it just an internship or did it turn into something a little more substantial so I actually wound up staying there for about five years. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So um, during my internship, you know, I just started talking to people, especially um, in the edit suite, what they kind of called their production group. And, you know, I told them that I really had a love of graphics and animations. And I asked them if they would be willing to just kind of show me the ropes of how they do it for the stadium. At the time, one of the editors who also did motion graphics was like, yeah, sure, you know, come back and we'll show you stuff. If you want to make some animations for the board, you know, we'll let you. And I was like, wow, really? <laughs> like, I, I was shocked. And that's... So 30,000 people are going to see my stuff uh -huh. in an hour? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was like, okay. Obviously, like after getting over the initial shock, I, I was super excited. And they had me start basically... They called them a scoreboard strip at the time. And they were animations that went across the scoreline to hype people up. So, um, you know, I remember making one for Pablo Sandoval at the time, which was, you know, some pandas and just, you know, let's go Pablo. And I, I thought it was awesome. You know, it was. It <laughs> yeah, but that kind of eventually turned into a full time gig. 
yeah, after my internship, um, they were looking for someone to do graphics and called me back. And within a few months, I was their full-time and first uh, dedicated motion graphics designer. Oh, wow. And that, and when people are thinking about this, I mean, I actually had to stop when we, we had talked before when we were setting this up. It's like, you know, there's a lot of scoreboards. There's a lot of visual real estate in a stadium that you often overlook. I mean, there's the typical scoreboard or the video screen, but you've got, you know, the wraparounds, you've got the smaller screens, you've got, I'm sure the TVs that are in everywhere else, you know, while you're waiting in line to get hot dogs and go to the can. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of real estate that you're creating for. How much of that stuff, was that all you or was that, you know, what world were you taking in that? Yeah. So um, like you mentioned, um, we had the scoreboard. We had, oh God, I think it was one, two, three, four, five of the wrapping boards. And oh, wow. Hundreds of TVs. I, I don't know that number. but um, <laughs> So I would say in terms of graphics, I did most things for the scoreboard uh, exclusively. Because the scoreboard was also a similar size to the TVs, that was kind of a one-done situation. Okay. Exactly. And then um, I did do animations and graphics for the uh, scoreline boards as well. But we did have um, outsourced companies for that as well, just because it is absolutely so much content. And that wasn't something anyone could handle on their own. But we would have like uh, player headshots for the scoreboard that I would create. And then basically these um, outside companies or vendors uh, would take that design, take my um, After Effects project, and then translate it into all the supporting content for the park. Okay, so you're, you're creating the, the template and the, and the look and feel, and then other outside people are, are creating off of that. Exactly, yes. Got it. Okay. Well, you, you mentioned After Effects, so all that time spent 3D modeling, which is different software, I'm, I'm guessing Maya, and what else would uh, 3D Studio Max back then, or...? Yeah, so um, Maya, and then uh, especially when I went to the Giants, I actually learned Cinema 4D. Yeah, which is kind of the uh, motion designer's 3D kit, you know. And um, obviously, I knew the basics. I understood how to make a 3D model. But learning that in a brand new program, it, I mean, I wish I was better at it. I'm still learning it every day. But it, it was a task. And I spent a lot of time just being like, when I had downtime at the Giants, taking that software and making different things that could be used at the park. We didn't have a lot of downtime, you know, that usually came between December and uh, March, you know, depending on how well the Giants did in particular seasons. So that's when I really focused on trying to bring those 3D worlds into my job. Were you doing just Giants games or was there other, you know, like the concerts and stuff that rolled in? Did you get a chance to do that stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, I helped uh, with a little bit of that. Basically, uh, the Giants are kind of split up into two groups almost. There's kind of like the day of game, the front office staff, and then there's Giants Enterprises, which is also front office staff, of course, but they were basically that main contact for the concerts and all those different events. You know, I, I did help them mostly with the loading in the scoreboard rooms. You know, we had different computers where you put graphics on it and it went to the board. So that was kind of more my job because usually a lot of these outside events already had graphics packages put together, but sometimes they would consult me and be like, Hey, is this going to work on the board or did they send it in the right specs? And you know, that kind of stuff. So I was more just kind of a consultant on that end. Well, 100% of my job, I would say was just the day of game and broadcast stuff. 
Okay. So, you know, again, no pressure, just, just live event happening. Millions of people watching easy, easy, simple stuff. No, no. Whoops. Oh man. My finger slipped. No, uh, you know, I don't remember who told me this at my time at the Giants, but it always resonated with me is especially with live events. I guess this could go for life in general too, but there's a million ways something can go wrong and only one way it can go right. But but I like to add on to it. It's the way that you handle those million things that can go wrong is what makes the absolute difference at the end of the day. Things are like always kind of going wrong in live events, but that's also to the person that's behind the scenes seeing everything happen. Like if you're just a spectator that has no idea what's supposed to be happening exactly, you're probably not going to catch it, which, you know, that doesn't make me feel any better about the mistake that just happened, but... Oh, well, you know, we move on and we make it better from there. Hey, just want to take a very quick break and say thank you for listening to Creative Mind. If you have any questions or thoughts, let us know. Click on the show notes for our email or head over to anchor.fm slash creative mind to leave a voice message. Working in live events and working in this rush, rush, go, go. How did that change your career path? Or, or was this, if you were doing 3D, 3D modeling, which is, you know, for lack of a better term, button chair work and sitting in a dark room, creating amazing characters. And then you're going off and doing live event. How did this change your career path or how did you see a new career out of this? That's a great question and kind of a complicated answer for me. But, you know, at the time, motion graphics became that thing that's like, okay, somebody's giving me a chance at it because I know the basics. Now I really need to commit to it if I want to get better, if I want to earn a career out of it. And that's kind of what I focused on. And at the time, I didn't realize, you know, what that would mean for the future. And I, I still always had that love of 3D modeling just because it was something I really enjoyed doing. And, you know, motion graphics, I enjoy doing as well. But it wasn't like the same exact enjoyment because I haven't mentioned yet, but, you know, kind of my dream goal, because I brought up theme parks earlier, was kind of somehow getting into that world and creating those worlds. And when I got to the Giants, obviously that wasn't, it, it was close, not what I had expected or what I was hoping for, you know, in my career. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But with my time at the Giants, even though I wasn't doing a lot of 3D modeling, in some situations I did get to do 3D modeling, but I'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, no, I would just say like things I learned from researching how theme parks were built and reading books and learning about kind of like that experience for the guest is something I tried to bring over to the Giants in a way. I got lucky with when I did go to the Giants because they did a lot of scoreboard updates with the different you know, boards around the park, which actually gave me the opportunity to just create stories in a way that hadn't been done at the park before. Oh, wow. So give, give me an example of that. Yeah, sure. In addition to, you know, the 80 or so games a year that we do for baseball, which, you know, don't necessarily change that often sure, um, sure. when it comes to graphics and stuff. We and, also and, and, and also being good at creating a consistency is also key. A lot of people forget, you know, you can recreate the wheel every day, but that's not what they're paying to see. <laughs> no, exactly. And that was my thing too, is since I did go to games there before being hired there, you know, I kind of had an idea of what they did and how they did it just from watching games, you know, 
But when I was on the other side of the equation, one of my favorite things to do there were the special event days, because that was kind of those days where you had a lot of creative freedom and it wasn't just purely about baseball. And plus, because I'm a nerd, it was a lot of these brands that I had grown up admiring. I got to work with Star Wars and Marvel and Pixar, and those were my bread and butter. I had all the ideas um, for um, (laughs) those days. One of my favorite projects I got to work on, which kind of tied that storytelling aspect that I enjoy doing to baseball, it was for the 40th anniversary of A New Hope, and uh, there was a Star Wars day at the park, and it had been scheduled on the same day as a a fireworks show. Oh, wow. So there was nothing like being done to correlate the two at the time. So I went to kind of the head people there and I was like, hey, it would be really cool if we kind of made an experience around the fireworks show where it was tied to Star Wars. And they were like, oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Do it. And I was like, okay. Yay, crap. I mean, no, yes. Yay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, okay, well, cool. You've given me the go ahead and now I'm going to start planning everything out. So thank you. What I kind of had to do at that point was do a bunch of research. And I had no idea what went into producing a fireworks show. I knew nothing. All I yeah, So knew, it wasn't you running around with a cigarette lighter around the park? That was I, it, I you? No, that, that was me as a kid on the 4th of July. That's about all I got, you know? Um, but all I had to take away or learn from at that point was how other fireworks shows had worked at the Giants. And what I knew was they usually just used music. The music was tied to the fireworks. And there was usually a very large waiting period from when the game ended to when the fireworks began. So I was like, okay, how do we keep people from not wanting to leave the park? At that time, other than if you stay around, maybe the traffic won't be as bad when you go home, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Growing up in L.A., you know, we always joked. It's like, you know, what was the score in the Dodger game? I don't know. I left in the seventh to beat the traffic. Exactly. I have no idea. I heard I heard the end of the, uh, on the radio home. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, I'm very guilty of that as well. Because <laughs> getting out of San Francisco is a pain, right. especially after a Giants game. But yeah, so... What I came up with was an idea for kind of interactive, but not so interactive game show that we'd have a contestant come up and do right after the game and before fireworks started, something to kind of bridge that gap. So basically, my proposal was, it was a game that basically there were three X-Wings on the board and they were all going to be shooting at the Death Star and you had to guess which one was going to be the one to destroy it. And so basically this was like a three-minute animation that was timed to every board in the park. And there was X-Wings flying around and there was the, the Millennium Falcon flying around. And, you know, there was always something to look at. So y- your idea was to turn Giant Stadium into a giant video arcade because no one else told you no? Yeah, that's basically okay. it. Okay. Yes. Got it. Okay. <laughs> Yep, that's 100% it. And I I mean, at that time, I was like, oh my God, like I get to create this story. I get to bring people into it. Like I get to make something that nobody's ever done at this park before. And that's pretty darn cool, you know? 
that animation took forever to do. But after that, too, when that game finished, we had a kid come up. We kind of rigged it a little just because, you know, we, we wanted the kid to win. And it would have been really sad had we spent all that work on <laughs> that animation to not have the kid win. Little Johnny, you picked B. Uh, that wasn't it. Go home, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Exactly. Yeah. So no, but it, it actually worked out because Luke, Lucas uh, Arts gave us a really nice gift package to give to the. Oh, room. that's awesome. Um, so you know he went away really happy, but then after that, that game kind of led into the beginning of the fireworks show, where I had edited. Gosh, I think it came out to about fifteen minutes. Basically, just like the shortened Cliff Notes version of what happened in A New Hope. And, oh wow! Um, but still, 50, a fifteen-minute edit is a is a long edit. Yeah, exactly. That's a lot of work. Yeah, and that that included motion graphics as well. At the time, I had found this really cool 3D pack from a video. Um, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, but uh, it was a- some cool templatized things to make your life a little bit easier. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it was all uh, 3D models from Star Wars. There was R two D two. There was BB eight. You had the different corridors for the different ships. You know, there was the X wing that I got to use in the game show as well. But, you know, a lot of those beginning animations was all created with 3D models doing motion graphics. So that was fun for me. And then with the edit, it was basically broken into about five parts, uh, about three minutes a piece. What was cool about it was four of those five parts were all based on kind of the plot of A New Hope. You know, it just went through the different major plot points. That was also the year Carrie Fisher had passed away, unfortunately. And, you know... I love Carrie Fisher. I grew up watching the movies. I cried the day she died. And I, I also brought that up to my supervisors. And I'm like, hey, I'd really like to do one of these parts as a tribute to Carrie Fisher in particular. And I, I always say this with my work, but, you know, the end goal for me is just being able to see someone have an emotion to it, whether it's happiness or sadness or whatever. I know when that e emotion is evoked that I've done a good job. And I mean, when that part came up on the board, everybody just kind of burst out in applause. And I was like, oh, wow. wow, like, this is really cool. And it, it just like all of that stress of getting all of that produced live and then, you know, all the behind the scene works, even though in the moment it's like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Why am I doing this to myself? Like in that moment, it becomes 100 percent worth it. Oh, that's awesome. Because, yeah, I mean, everything you're doing is a one-off. It's You're doing 80 one-offs, 100 one-offs a year, and that's it. You're done. It's, it's fleeting. That Wow, that's got to be – yeah, I, I did not think of that because, I mean, at least when somebody is doing a tactile art form, it's like, yeah, there it is. You can Here's a picture of it. Here's my sculpture. It's like, no, 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 you weren't there. It's gone. Yeah, 100%. You bring up an interesting point too because that's always something I've struggled with. It's like you put in so much work for something that – happens over a span of 15 minutes it's like cooking a really nice dinner and having everybody around you devour it in five minutes and it's like okay well i'm glad it was good but the moment's over you know right. <laughs> it's, it's hard to i mean for me it was great because i did ask for recordings of everything that happened that night so i'm lucky to have that to look back on but to everybody else in the world it's like okay it happened that one time it's over you know we move on and uh, <laughs> 
I enjoy doing things that kind of have a longer lifespan. Another fun project I got to do at the Giants, basically before each game, we have what's called the Disclaimer Madness. And it's basically going over every single rule in the park because we have to do that. But nobody likes listening to it because sure. it's fun. And the original idea that got brought up by my boss, and I, I originally took it on as the idea that was going to be for that year was, I know nobody remembers what going to a movie theater is like anymore, <laughs> but like in <laughs> Cinemark, they'd have just kind of like this uh, very iconography based, turn off your cell phone, right. and, you know, all this stuff. And so that was kind of what we were leaning towards, but because I hate myself, I guess, um, before the season started, I was like, wait a second, I have a really creative idea, please let me do it. And my creative idea was, I want to have two seagulls that are just completely breaking every single rule, and then animate that 2D animation, and then have a VO going over the top of it with a lot of really bad bird puns I came up with. And that would be our disclaimer of madness for the year. Well, Little did I know at the time that people actually enjoyed it, and it wound up being that video for, I'm, I'm not sure if they were running it, I mean, obviously they didn't run it last year, of course, but they ran it up until the time I left. So that one had a longer lifespan, and everybody always enjoyed it. When it came on, people actually watched the scoreboard instead of their phones, and that made me happy. So. That, but you know, th very few people can say that. that yeah. I made somebody stop looking at their phone. <laughs> and that is extremely hard to do nowadays. That, and that is a pretty powerful thing. I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, you're making motion graphics and you're making videos. And I mean, when in reality, we're talking about you're, you're vying for an extremely important thing, somebody's attention, the eyeballs of a large group of people. When you left the Giants, you know, where did you then go into? I mean, it, it had to be a, a strange transition to leave. You, you could even say the Giants are an international brand at this point. I mean, as much as, you know, American sports are, you know, we, we ham-fisted everywhere we can. Where did you, you know, career-wise, where did you go after that? Yeah, so I kind of made a parallel jump, I would say, um, into the esports world. I went to work for Energy Esports, who owns the San Francisco Shock, which is an Overwatch League team. Basically, at the time I was hired, a lot of my work became focused on social media, which, again, I think kind of goes back to that fleeting moment um, when you're creating something. It was also 2019, and that was the Overwatch League was getting ready to have home events. And a big reason I got brought on was because I had that background doing live events for the Giants. And, you know, I knew how scoreboard rooms operated and how content you know, worked for different events like that. While I was there, you know, I did a lot of motion graphics again, different winning animations, different like live animations, just different things to catch people's attention. Well, can you explain this to me? Because I think this is a hard thing for a lot of people to figure out and we're all still trying to figure it out. You know, when you say esports, a lot of people go, you're not breaking a sweat. You're not really running marathons. You're not overly athletic. And you look like somebody who eats a lot of pizza and you're a sports guy. I mean, we used to joke about, about bowling. It's like get up, drink a beer, roll a ball, sit down. I mean, no big deal. But esports is beyond worldwide at this point, And it's billions of dollars in revenue. From somebody who has an, I don't want to say an actual sports background, somebody who has a more traditional ba sports background, how is esports 
doing? When you look at esports, do you look at it and go, yeah, this is this is live event competition. It, does it have this look and feel to you as somebody who's pulling the strings to make it work? Oh, 100%. And, you know, I, I get that divide that happens. All of us have grown up either throwing a football around or catching baseballs and mitts. And, you know, we just kind of were ingrained with that feeling like that's a sport. There's nothing else that can be a sport. And I think even um, I looked it up earlier, like the definition of sport basically comes down to the physicality of it. And of course, when you see someone sitting in front of a computer screen playing a game, that's not what you think. I mean, as a video game player myself, I've been labeled a couch potato many times in my life. Um, but I, I think, you know, especially... I, Little I, did you know you've been in training for 35 years now at this point. Or, exactly. or, excuse me, pardon me, 10 years. <laughs> no, I, I will never be that good at any video <laughs> game ever. But it's very much a generational divide right now. Because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, video games haven't been around as long as playing baseball, obviously. But in terms of like competitive video games, that is very, very, very new in the grand scheme of things. And a lot of people that are older don't understand how that can make money. You hear those stories from esports players all the time where, you know, their parents weren't, you know, nearly as supportive because they didn't get it. And, you know. And then that endorsement check comes in. You're like, oh, Johnny, Johnny, are you practicing? Exactly. Did yep. You practice today? <laughs> Why aren't you practicing now, Johnny? <laughs> yep. And even from like the back end side of stuff, it's like, okay, you were working at the Giants. How is this a job? Explaining that to certain individuals was tough just because they didn't understand how esports functioned. I mean, you know, most of the comments I got was, oh, you're working on a video game. No, I'm not working on the video game. Okay. How, how do you then, as, as somebody who's creating something for broadcast and trying to edit a thrill, I mean, I've worked on a couple of esports projects and, and people are starting to see it's becoming more, more commonplace, but how do you manufacture a thrill from a broadcast standpoint? What is it that you are looking for? What are you combining to create an event? It's hard because, um, at least for me, like what I've seen in the esports world is like at least a lot of my coworkers and stuff also worked in sports, traditional sports. So a lot of those same applications that were used in traditional sports also work in esports. I think with esports, we have a little bit more leniency uh, with baseball and different things like that. It can feel almost stuffy just because of the audience we're trying to cater to. But since, you know, when it comes to video games, that audience does skew younger, you get to have a little bit more fun with it. I, I really enjoyed being able to do that because like some of our animations were, you know, kind of digs at other teams, nothing terrible, just like, a, okay, you know, we're better than you kind of thing. And like, you don't see that in, in other, um, right. Yeah. You know, not, not as much sports. taunting in, in golf. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it gets the reaction, you know, like that, that's kind of the whole thing with all of these teams is like, they really focus on their social media. So that was fun, like getting to kind of come up with these creative ideas of how do we poke fun at these other teams while also still making us, you know, look good and not too mean, you know, it just, it, 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 you had just a little bit more creative flexibility there. 
And when it came to the live events, I, I got to go to the Valiant homestand in 2019. And the energy, even though the crowds are different, the energy between like a playoff baseball game and 12 guys on a stage playing Overwatch, it's crazy how similar they are. And even though, you know, I, I think the venue probably was only holding, you know, three to 5,000 people in as opposed to Giant Stadium that can hold 40,000 people, you know, it, it was exciting and people just got into it. There was a passion for it. And I think that's what's so great about video games in particular, you know, is the passion behind it. This is a, 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 it's a tough question to ask because it sounds almost talking down to somebody, but you know, I, I've been to some League of Legends playoff events and been to plenty of sports events, uh, all different kinds. I spent a lot of time working in racing where it's like, I don't know anything about car racing, but it's insanity. What's exciting about watching people play a video game? I, okay, so that, that question, I think, has a lot of different answers as well. Because, you know, I think the biggest barrier to entry, so to say, into like the esports world is... A, like buying the game and, you know, which is more expensive than say buying a baseball and throwing it around and understanding sure. the game, you know, <laughs> usually when you're watching baseball, you get it right away. Yeah. But it doesn't take long. You know, when you're, when you're spending, you know, $30 for Overwatch and, you know, you start playing and it's like, oh, okay, this is really involved. If you're not like actively playing the game or watching a streamer that plays the game or even knowing the lore behind it because Overwatch is such a story-heavy game, you get lost instantly. When I started playing Overwatch even, you know, it it took me a good 50 to 100 hours playing the game to really understand what was going on. And, and you know, it's not like that for every game, but, you know, I, I've played like League of Legends and all Rocket League and stuff like that. Some of them just make more sense quicker than others. But that doesn't stop the people that are passionate about video games and esports. And at the end of the day, because of that barrier of entry, I feel like it's very hard to convert more people to watching it. Because at the Giants, you know, we always had campaigns of how can we appeal to a younger crowd? But then you get into esports and it's like, okay, how do we appeal to an older crowd? <laughs> and it's, it's a very different mindset because, you know, all these teenagers and stuff that you see at the events, they get it. And some of their parents got it too because they all right. played together. It was a very different mentality to switch into. And it, oh, I think wow. it's still wow. something that it's not going to be fleshed out for 10 or 15 more years, you know? It's just okay. something okay. that we're all kind of, attempting to figure out this is a very big bottle with a whole lot of lightning in it let's just enjoy it exactly okay yes. and so, I, I yeah go go ahead <laughs> <laughs> well i was just gonna say you know, just to kind of wrap it up a little bit mm -hmm. you you have definitely gone from point a to point z to point q to point four six seven eight nine give some students advice on what it takes to you know, when you graduate, I've got this art degree, I've got some technical skills. Now what do I do? Yeah, I, th I think my biggest advice I'd give anyone looking back is don't be afraid to do something else for a while until you find your niche. I never thought when I graduated from there, I was going to be doing motion graphics. It was something I had opened After Effects maybe twice in my life to that <laughs> Um, I, I remember no pressure. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I, my animation like 101 course, they had us do a title sequence for our animation that we did. And that was my limitation to After Effects. But um, <laughs> just going back is like, okay, while you're trying to, you know, whether it's polish your portfolio or meet those contacts that you need for the future, if something else comes up where you can get that resume built or, you know, meet other people that can help you out in the future, don't not take it just because it's not your dream. I mean, I, I'm still trying to figure that out too. And, you know, I've been out of college for six years now. And I, I know I see a lot of people get discouraged because right out of college, they're not getting hired to make the next best video game or whatever. Don't be afraid to just take a different route, see how it goes. You may actually wind up loving something completely different or getting to experience something you never imagined you could, you know, and those lessons along the way are going to be absolutely priceless. Well, that's great. That's really good advice. Yeah. You learn this, but you know, we're paying for this. The answer could be yes. Exactly. Let's, and, yeah. uh, can you do motion graphics? Yeah, sure. Sure. What are motion graphics? Yes, I can do those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember a teacher giving me that advice once too. It's just, even if you don't necessarily know how to do something, say you can. And as soon as you get off a phone call with a recruiter, go learn it. Go, go watch YouTube videos. Go make stuff. Don't be afraid to do that because that's what I did when the giants were like, oh yeah, you can make graphics and animations. We don't care. And I was like, okay, I've really got to learn how to use After Effects to its full capability. And that's what I did. And it worked out. And don't be afraid to take risks, obviously. So if something falls in your lap that you might not think is the best idea at the time, see where it leads. You always have that knowledge to come back to of whatever degree you were pursuing. And worst case scenario, you turn Giant Stadium into a giant video game. And exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there you have it. Some great insight onto where entertainment, where sports entertainment, where esports is headed. Because as more and more art and design career opportunities are on the rise, employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and skilled creative professionals. Here at Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco or anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request information about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, animation, fashion design, and more, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash creative mind. I'm Bobby Brill. Thanks for listening.